from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to a new episode of the CR's podcast, today in collaboration with the Open Society European Policy Institute. I'm Camino Martina Martinez, your resident Spaniard and CR's Migration North. Uh, today we're going to take a look at the European Commission's much-awaited new migration pact. There's been a lot of hot takes out there, uh, including mine. I've been tweeting like a mad woman for the past three days. So I am very lucky to be chatting to one of the most knowledgeable, level-headed experts I know in town, uh, and that's Julia Lagana. Julia is a senior analyst on migration policies at the Open Society European Policy Institute here in Brussels and a fellow pandemic mum, as she likes to say. Um, hello, Julia. Hi. Julia, I know that in an attempt to escape the never-ending migration policy debate here, you're now delving into farming, uh, which I believe is not quite literally, I should think. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But today, I, I really have to ask you, and I'm really sorry, uh, what's your view on the Commission's new migration deal? Well, yeah, you're right about my trying to escape migration. But uh, as we'll discuss further, I think it's migration-related stuff that... that um, about farming. Um, it's not literal, even though I do have a sort of passionate dream about going into farming myself one day, but that's also for another podcast. <laughs> the, the migration pact was um, both a bit of a surprise as far as I'm concerned, but mostly not. Um, so I'll just explain first why it was a tiny bit of a surprise, i.e. the fact that despite all the talk about the importance of the EU focusing on legal migration and migrant labour, Um, there was very little in the pact about this, um, and all the proposals that were floated in, in the various documents have been postponed to next year. So that was both surprising and a bit disappointing, very disappointing. Um, and for the rest, I have to say that it really felt like Groundhog Day, um, like waking up in somewhere in the middle of 2016, and reading and hearing the kind of uh, rhetoric and PR spin that you would have expected back then. Um, so my sort of political take on the pact would be that it was a sort of misplaced, mistimed reaction to public opinion four years ago. Um, public opinion has now moved on to more pressing issues like the pandemic and recession. Um, and, and climate change and, and other other more, more more important topics. And the responses you got from the Commission were trying to address fears that are really no longer there in the majority of public opinion, except on the far right fringes. Um, so what the pact basically outlined was more of what we've been seeing for the last five years, but possibly worse, um, and a series of proposed solutions to a non-existent problem. Um, Commissioner Johansson herself presented it by saying, you know, look, folks, the majority of people come to Europe on a legal basis. We have 2.5 million people coming to Europe legally every year. So that's what we should be focusing on. And then she pivoted and the whole pact was about 
trying to stop the few thousand who still try to reach Europe's borders irregularly. So it seemed to be, yeah, they seem to be stuck in a rut with this obsession about irregular arrivals and returning migrants and so on. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's, that's really struck me was... Um, you know, like indeed, uh, there's been a lot of, of things which were touted before. And, and to me, for example, the three-tire mechanism, the crisis mechanism and all that uh, looks very similar to what the Bulgarian um, presidency uh, suggested in 2018, the so-called Bulgarian Compromise. So it's indeed something that seems to have been doing the rounds uh, in Brussels for a long time. But to me, one thing that was particularly um, interesting was the, the strong focus on returns. And as you say, um, we are nowhere near the numbers that we had in 2015, uh, but returns seem to be sort of the, the, the magic bullets, right? The silver bullets to, to sort all the problems because we know that less than, than, than 40% of the people uh, who arrive um, regularly are actually sent back to the countries of origin uh, or even transits. But as we, we've said several times, return is possibly uh, the most difficult part of any migration policy because you need the help of uh, third countries, because you need uh, to rightly identify people, to have the right carrots, the right sticks. And to me, one thing that was particularly worrying um, in, this, in this package that the Commission presented was this idea of a return sponsorship. Um, because not only seems to me um, that this is not a workable solution, I, I still don't see how um, countries with no diplomatic ties to, say, uh, sub-Saharan Africa or, or experience in doing, in doing returns uh, would actually carry returns in a human rights uh, compliance way. Uh, but also it seems to me um, that the Commission has given in to, to the populist in this, in the idea of, okay, you, you may, in times of crisis again, uh, you may take somebody in, uh, you may help to build something, or you may simply return people back to their countries, which uh, basically just uh, plays into the hands of those saying, see, like, not only we are not taking people in, but we are kicking people out. So that's what, you know, like, politically really worried me uh, about this package, um, besides, you know, all the technicalities about uh, asylum procedures and, and all these sort of things. And then there wasn't a second thing that, to me, was a bit um, was a bit worrying, which is this idea of doing uh, sort of like instant checks at the border and insisting that now uh, together with fingerprinting we're going to have security checks and this is something that you know we've been talking about uh, as well for a long time uh, ever since there was this this uh, wrong conflation between terrorists and migrants and all these sort of things uh, but one thing that, that that really worries me is how how are the security checks going to be made because one thing that we saw during the 2015-2016 crisis is that you can't really do security checks on people fleeing uh, from, from conflict uh, because precisely because you know they're fleeing a country uh, which is either in the middle of a war or they're fleeing prosecution or whatever. Um, so that's, that's something that worries me uh, very much and that I think is not going to contribute uh, to sort out uh, you know the image problem that the Commission has and that has uh, sort of uh, just increased with the Moria uh, fire, which is, I think, the reason why we are seeing this proposal coming out now. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that the, the proposal was put forward on the 23rd of September instead of the 30th of September because of Moria is a bit ridiculous, if you ask me, because we've been waiting for the pact to appear since April. Um, but on your two points, one about returns and the other about the, the, the screenings and procedures. So on returns, I think one of the, the key things to, to bear in mind is that actually a lot of the data that gets thrown around is, is actually fake. Um, the Commission keeps saying that 30 to 40 percent of people who should be returned are not returned and so on. Um, but those statistics are not actually accurate. Um, and the same applies to uh, Commission data that they kept throwing around in the press conference the other day about recognition rates for asylum seekers. They kept saying that only a third are recognised, which is not true. If you look at the actual official EU data, it was 40% last year. And crucially, it was 40% at first instance, which means the first interview the asylum seeker has and so on. And a lot of those decisions and negative ones get overturned on appeal in the courts. So actually, that is also a fallacy. And that brings me to my second point, which is that a lot of the returns that, that you know, the Commission and other and the governments claim should be happening and are not happening would not be happening, should not be happening if Europe had more uh, avenues and routes for legal migration, because a lot of people who arrive in countries like Spain, for instance, or Italy, Greece is less so because a lot of the people there are from Afghanistan and Syria and so on. But Spain and Italy in particular, those are people who are coming to Europe to work because there are no other ways for them to do so. And so they end up in the asylum procedure and become, you know, abusive asylum seekers and so on and so forth precisely because they can't come in any other way and they find jobs in the black economy and carry on working. So if Europe's um, migration system were actually, you know, addressed in a comprehensive way and the pact had actually addressed legal migration as well, they would have had a lot less people to actually return. So that's 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 one point. And then your political point about caving into, um, yeah, to name the elephant in the room, the Visegrad four countries and other countries which refuse to take in asylum seekers. It's, it's yeah, you're perfectly right. And that's why when I said that it felt like Groundhog Day, it was also disappointing and depressing in a way to, to think that EU migration policy has effectively been shaped by those actors. So there's been an endorsement of, of and a caving in to uh, those countries that basically say we are not willing to take in any refugees. Um, and that says a lot, I'm afraid, about the sorry state of the European Union. Um, on your point about the border procedures and the screenings, well, the thing is the security screenings, as, as you also pointed out, um, are mostly a farce. Um, in a lot of cases, the, the when people are identified, they, their names are taken down wrongly, and that leads to a whole series of bureaucratic problems and, and further on in their application and so on, because there are no interpreters, because the police officers are not familiar with foreign languages, and especially languages of people from countries in the Middle East and Africa um, or Afghanistan. Um, so the security checks are actually just, just a farce. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I think there's a very low security risk, as you point out, from people who are reaching Europe in this way. I mean, if you're a bona fide terrorist, the last thing you're going to do is get on a dinghy and risk your life to cross the Mediterranean. Um, you have other ways of getting into Europe. 
What really worries me about the border procedures element is the fast tracking of asylum procedures, um, because that means there will be a lot less safeguards, a lot less guarantees, and there is a concrete risk that people who are fleeing persecution will not get recognized as refugees. Um, and one last final point on that is that it's another of my sort of big criticisms of this pact is the fact that these so-called fast track procedures will actually not be fast track at all um, because we've seen them pioneered in Greece and people have been stuck on the islands for months and years. Um, and what will happen inevitably is that people will fester and be warehoused in the in abysmal conditions at Europe's borders for a very, very long time. So. I see practical reasons as well for this pact not actually working. Yeah, on that, I, I found it interesting that Commissioner Johansson was actually uh, talking about deadlines, right? So this fast track procedures, as, as they call it, uh, has a deadline of uh, 12 weeks. Um, and then these people should be deviated to new reception facilities, whatever that means, uh, which should be built uh, together with those countries who do not want to take people in. So I can imagine that this whole thing is going to be a little bit more complicated uh, to to implement that it sounds, uh, you know, if you, if you if you listen to to the presser or if you just look at the website where everything looks like this is going to be really easy and, you know, we are going to identify very quickly whether somebody is applying for asylum or not and then if this person doesn't qualify, uh, um, uh, we are going to return this person to, 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 to the country, uh, which is absolutely, as you point out, um, not what's happening on the ground. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, she repeated that yesterday as well in the European Parliament Civil Liberties Committee in which, you know, she said, yeah, we can do screening in five days, no problem. I mean, the problem is that the screening procedure also has to look into vulnerabilities and there should be doctors present and so on. And that has been a crucial problem in places like Greece and Italy and Spain. A lot of the people arriving are traumatized, they've experienced sexual violence, torture and so on. And you can't really engage with somebody who's been through that kind of experience and identify them as vulnerable in such a short period of time. And the other thing on the 12 week, you know, um, deadline, I mean, everybody cites the Netherlands, for example, as having, you know, the fastest asylum procedure in the European Union and so on, because in theory, it's eight days. And they do stick to that eight days. The problem is that to access the asylum procedure, to apply for asylum and so on, there are incredibly long waiting times. I think on average, it's something like seven or eight months. So it's not actually true. Like nobody, not even the efficient Dutch, can actually process asylum seekers in 12 weeks. It's impossible. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that, that that is to be said is that we we're talking uh, about numbers are not uh, anywhere near what we had in 2015. Um, so all this fast tracking and, and all these sort of things are supposed to be uh, for times of crisis. That's what I understand from, from the commission's proposal. And the, the whole of like effective solidarity, which to me sounds a, a bit of a funny thing because it's, it's more like a compulsory solidarity uh, kind of thing. Um, it's supposed to be uh, continuous, but again, um, mostly active when there are crises. So uh, as, you, as you very rightly point out, I think that uh, this is probably a response to feelings which were there in 2016 and is ignoring uh, some of the big questions that, uh, you know, the migration policy has and where the debate has uh, shifted. For example, as you very rightly point out, uh, legal migration. Because um, one thing that I found interesting is that the Commission itself, and they made it very very clear in the presser, um, is trying to decouple 
legal migration from irregular arrivals. And one thing to be said for that is that there's been a lot of criticism from, uh, you know, pundits, commentators, uh, NGOs, whatever, um, in the sense that we all know that, you know, like legal migration is not going to stop irregular arrivals. That's something that uh, we all have very clear. And at some point, uh, the European Union's uh, sort of rhetoric seemed to go down that road. Like if we do legal migration, we are going to uh, bring arrivals arrivals to zero, which is not going to happen. But it's true that it's quite odd, though, that they have not uh, sort of presented a bigger, uh, more ambitious uh, proposal on legal migration together with this new migration pact, uh, and is, uh, which is only focused on irregular migration and stopping people from coming and, 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 and getting people back. So I have been looking at the proposals, and even if they haven't made a big fuss about it, there are some proposals in the pipeline uh, for the European Union, like establishing talent partnerships with third countries, or reforming uh, the European Union uh, rules for long-term residents. Uh, so I don't know whether you think this will be useful, or or what other things should the European Union be doing about legal migration, legal pathways to Europe, which which uh, could be, um, you know, perhaps better. Yeah. So first, one quick point about because you mentioned the the crises that need to trigger the solidarity mechanism. Um, one other risk that I see, and one other big fallacy of this pact, is that it will perpetuate the situation we have now, whereby some countries, I won't name names, but we all know who we're talking about, tend to prolong emergencies or create crises because it's politically expedient to do so, and therefore to leave people festering in slum camps instead of proper reception centers um, and so on, so that they can then, you know, clamor for solidarity from Northern Europe and say they're overwhelmed and so on, when the numbers are actually perfectly manageable. So that's another risk that I see, that it will incentivize that kind of behavior of of presenting everything as a crisis, even when it's, you know, 6,000 people, or in the case of Italy this year, 20,000 people in a country of 60 million, that cannot be a crisis. Um, On the legal migration, yeah, I found the proposals to be very, very good, actually, and I'm really looking forward to seeing them sort of fleshed out Um, hopefully early next year by the Commission. Um, A couple of things that I found especially promising were that the talent partnerships try to address the migration of of labourers from outside Europe, not just at the highly skilled level, which is something that countries are generally more willing to accept, um, even though Europe has been performing really badly on that front because all the highly skilled tend to go to America or the UK. but also on the medium and low skilled. And and that's what actually Europe's economy most needs. Um, And another helpful development, which I think has spurred the formulation of those talent partnerships is the pandemic. And the fact that a lot of us have come to realize that the definitions we use of low and medium skilled should actually change quite significantly. Um, I don't think we can continue to refer to care workers as as low skilled, for instance, and they should be given the recognition and the wages that they deserve. And the other good thing about the talent partnerships, I think, is that they finally bring together all the relevant actors. So they talk about interior ministries, which have been the driving force for all migration policy, but also the social affairs, the labour, the economy ministries, and crucially social partners, you know, businesses, unions, the people who actually get the economy moving. If you want these partnerships or packs or whatever you want to call them to work, you have to engage with the people who are gauging the labour market needs and filling them in a flexible and, and 
and um, creative and rapid way. So that was also, I found, really, really promising. And then there are other bits and pieces which are quite technical and sort of nerdy, but which are very, um, I think, also very positive. Um, trying to make sure, for instance, that um, there is intra-EU mobility of, of non-EU migrants. And what that means is, for instance, if you're a refugee or a migrant who has a permit to live and work in Spain, you currently have to wait five years to go and do so in another European country, even if you have family there, if you have a job offer and so on. And they want to shorten that time period for, for those categories, but also they want to really strengthen the, what's called a single permit, which would finally enable people to come to Europe through a single visa, basically, and then go and live and work where the job market um, actually needs them. So, yeah, I think I think there's, that part of the pack was really good. And I just wish that had been front and foremost. And then they said, oh, and as an aside, we've done all this stuff on borders and returns. But unfortunately, as we said, they seem to be stuck in a bit of a rut on that front. Which is, you know, like funny, as we were saying, because uh, the, the migration nerds and, and those following the, the policy debates, um, we've been talking about the legal pathways for like, what, now three years? I mean, that's like sort of like what the debate is. Um, and 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 the fact that the Commission is is indeed not using like the very good reforms they are proposing uh, to to sort of forefront this pact, uh, it, it's a bit of a missed opportunity uh, as well. Um, taking into account that the pandemic, as you say, has highlighted the needs for not only you know like high skill migration like doctors and and the likes uh, but also for low and medium skill um, uh, migrants and i remember like at the peak of the pandemic we had this 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 uh, cry for help in spain uh, because we needed uh, we need fruit pickers um, otherwise you know the whole uh, the whole harvest uh, would, would go to waste and there was this big debate on whether or not we could we could get these people uh, coming from abroad on some sort of like an emergency uh, procedure um, so that's what we were talking about like we were talking about how to bring to Europe um, not only the high skill but the lower medium skill and how to make different labor markets in Europe coupled with uh, skills that they are needed because as we uh, also very well know we don't have a, a single labor market right uh, so needs are very different in Germany than they are uh, in Spain for example and we have to allow people um, in mm -hmm. you know to 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 cover those needs um, and and to be able to move and 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 work where opportunities uh, arise uh, but let me go back to these uh, seasonal workers that I was thinking of and these these, uh, these fruit pickers and, and, and people like that. I think that Spain is by no means the only country uh, with this sort of um, migration and this sort of, uh, of question. We have agreements with Morocco, with our, with our uh, you know, like uh, rolled out every year for seasonal workers to come uh, to Spain. Um, but as I was saying, the pandemic has like sort of made everything uh, much more urgent and 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 worse for 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 these migrants as well. Um, many of these workers are actually working farms, and that's what your farming experience is going to uh, come in very handy, um, because these farms are still heavily subsidized by uh, the common agricultural policy. And of course, we all know that the European Union is trying to reform the common agricultural policy, and I know nothing about it. So I was wondering whether, you know, migration 
fit somewhere uh, within these reforms? Or, you know, how, how, how is the European Union taking into account all these workers, all these uh, people coming from abroad uh, in, the, in the whole agricultural reform? Yeah, well, that's 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 a really interesting question, and um, it didn't used to, and but now it's starting to, and I think uh, maybe in tiny part thanks to our efforts and the efforts, for instance, of trade unions, um, but in large part uh, thanks to the pandemic, as as you were pointing out. I think you know another another point which which we already referred to is is our definitions of low skilled. I mean. The pandemic also exposed that myth about about farming and farm working, um, i.e. the fact that it's low skilled. When there was a shortage of seasonal workers at the the peak of the the lockdowns and so on, um, a lot of countries, France and Spain and Italy, Germany, tried to get their own nationals to go back into farming. And they failed miserably because actually you need to be pretty skilled to do things like, you know, prune an olive tree. And you need to be pretty hard working to put in 12 hours under the baking sun picking, you know, tomatoes or whatever. Um, I think another couple of myths which need busting about sort of the way the European um, agricultural labor market is, is structured and works. Uh, first and foremost, that uh, in a lot of countries in the South, especially, there is actually a limited need for seasonal work. So there was a lot of outcry, you know, oh, we need the seasonal workers, they're not coming in, they're all blocked and so on. But actually in those countries, in Greece and Italy and Spain, there is a large pool of undocumented workers of the migrants we were referring to before, um, who are already in the country and are normally employed illegally and exploited to a very severe degree. Um, and the only reason that they couldn't you know, become more apparent is because there's this taboo around regularization and actually giving these people feeding us and, and keeping us fed throughout the pandemic, the work permits and the rights that they, they actually need and deserve. And the other myth is that this kind of exploitation only happens in Southern Europe. And I think the pandemic has exposed and busted both of those myths. Um, we've also published research recently over the summer on the Netherlands, Germany and Sweden, which shows that the patterns of exploitation, if they're not as severe and as sort of slave-like as in Southern Europe, are widespread across the whole of Europe. And that's because Europe's agricultural and food supply chains are structured in a way which really squashes producers at the bottom, squeezes them so that their production costs um, are often higher than the cost, uh, the prices they get from the retail, uh, retail supermarket chains and so on. Um, and even the ones who you know, would like to pay living wages are not able to do so. Um, and that's how we got on to sort of trying to work on the common agricultural policy, because we reckon that you can't sort of fix the system you know, at the bottom. You've got to deal with it at the top. And a lot of the farms that are then exploiting workers are, as you pointed out, the, well, the vast majority of those farms are still receiving conspicuous amounts of EU funds um, for their agricultural production. So we started what we thought was just going to be a pipe dream, which was trying to push for uh, conditions to be attached, so strings to be attached to those funds. So that if you, you know, you're a producer, a farmer, you want to access EU money, you will have to, as, as the next uh, cap, which will come into force in 2023, you will have to uh, meet a series of environmental standards. So we said, well, um, we should also make sure that you meet labor standards. So you, know, you have to make sure you're not spraying tons of pesticides, but you also have to demonstrate that your workers have contracts, that they're housed properly, that if there's a pandemic, they've got PPE and are not working in close proximity and have access to hygiene and so on. Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, promisingly, now in the European Parliament, there are MEPs who've taken up this call and, and this issue is finally being addressed, including by the Polish Commissioner for Agriculture, um, who has promised to sort of look into this. So yeah, that's, that's where our farming stuff comes out. And, um, and I think it really ties all the elements we've been discussing together. I mean, the fact that you have to have, you know, multi-policy approaches to migration is such a complex phenomenon. You really have to look at the way labor markets work, at the way supply chains work. You can't just look at it from that narrow kind of borders, asylum, home affairs, ministry angle. Um, so it's good to see that Brussels, the broader bus Brussels scene is doing that, even though some people, unfortunately, who are driving the pact um, are not. Right. So, so as you say, um, if you want to solve your migration problems, you can't only look at borders. And that's something that we've been saying for a long time as well. You have to look at labor markets. You have to look at the economy. You have to look at integration. You have to look at narratives, at, uh, you know, at many uh, different things. But you also have to look at the money as you were rightly pointing out. And the money is at the moment um, a hot topic here uh, in Brussels uh, because member states are in the process of renegotiating uh, not only the common agricultural policy, but obviously the whole uh, European Union's uh, five years budget or MFF in uh, Brussels uh, bubble jargon. Um, I um, was... Um, you know, going going through 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 the proposals and, and through the negotiations um, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I noticed that obviously uh, there's been a major shift of focus uh, from uh, topics like migration or things which were very very important uh, pre-pandemic uh, to the recovery of the European economy, and that is something that uh, I think we can we can all uh, understand. But there's been um, a number of collateral. Uh, victims and collateral damages um, on the on the on the on the roads, and uh, one of them, and we've, we've uh, been uh, doing some research about this, um, has been developing policy, which I think um, it's uh, it's also part, you know, of 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 the the things that you have to look at when you think uh, about migration, um, and uh, I don't know whether you think that you know. Besides the whole uh, cap reform, um, there are other things that the European leaders are not, uh, you know, like particularly worried at the moment when they are trying to uh, to, to negotiate their their budgets, uh, which could impact uh, the way yeah. uh, the union handles migration in the coming years. Yeah, and you're right on that front, and I think. Um, in the next uh, EU budget, the proposals for development funding. Um, are probably fall far short of what they, they should be. Um, and there is funding in there to address migration, but I think it's, it's yeah, it's basically addressing the wrong things. I mean, they're still trying to do, you know, what they say is, you know, tackling the root causes and, you know, this, this idea which has been debugged by people like Michael Clemens and others, that if you pour development funding into a country, migrants will magically stop coming. Um, and again, that is very kind of 2010 rather than 2020. But I think more broadly, the migration funding in the next um, EU budget or MFF won't be affected in any particular way. Um, what I think the pact highlighted in sort of political terms is that it's a, it's a compromise. It was touted as a compromise, um, a political compromise on a topic which is no longer politically prominent. I mean, as you say, um, there are other political fights in Brussels these days. And actually, the European Commission may have inadvertently 
rekindle that right, that fight, and and boosted the far right in you know going on and on about borders again. Um, and I think you could see that in the reactions from uh, Viktor Orban and others yesterday when they said they liked the tone of the pact, but actually you know it was all rubbish and they didn't like it because they had to say something like that. And you know. Um, the real fight, yes, is the next MFF, um, the recovery fund for the pandemic, um, and especially the rule of law mechanisms, which countries like Hungary and Poland um, are strongly opposed to. They don't want to be to have anyone probing and prying into the way they use EU funds, and especially a link with the rule of law, which they are keen to flout. And so I think that what the pact disposes is it's the attempt to present a fractured Europe as as being united under the lowest possible denominator, basically adopting Auburn's position on migration, when the real problem is the fact that there are member states which simply do not respect EU values, and this is not being addressed. And in the process, refugees and migrants, but also the border communities, the people who live in places like Lesbos and Lampedusa and Ceuta and Melilla and so on, those people are just being sacrificed on the altar of, you know, fake political unity within the EU, which doesn't exist. And I just wish somebody in Brussels had the guts to call out that bluff and address the real problem they should be addressing. So on the powerful note, and in the hope that the European Union uh, manages to go get away from some of the most liberal members of the club, let's, let's uh, cross our fingers for that. Um, Let's end this um, podcast here and um, I would like to thank you very much, Julia, for your very sharp analysis of uh, not only the migration pact, but also uh, the, the other very urgent issues surrounding migration and the way the European Union is managing it. I would like to thank our listeners and um, ask them to subscribe um, to our podcast uh, in their useful podcast uh, provider. So, Julia, thank you very much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Likewise, this is uh, Camino Mortera from Brussels, the CR podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.